Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. And this is Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Yay! <laughs> shimmying. <laughs> no, the shimmying is what's going to make it big. Oh, is, we, we going to make what big? <laughs> uh, this podcast. It's going to become famous because of our shimmy moves. Because of my shimmy, shimmy shaking? Yeah, but only if we start videotaping the recording sessions. Ooh, maybe we'll <laughs> add that to the uh, Patreon page. It's behind the scenes uh, shimmying to the uh, theme song. <laughs> Heather shimmies to the theme song. It's the, the, the worst <laughs> offshoot, uh, worst spinoff of Sweatin' to the Oldies ever. <laughs> <laughs> shimmy to the shimmy into the theme song shimmy to the theme song shimmy shake shimmy shake shake it shake it shake oh i can't shimmy, i can't shimmy. i'm so sore i'm so sore from the, the thing last night uh, <laughs> so so last night uh last night or two nights ago for those of you who are listening when we actually release this or like six months ago for those of you who are listening to this. Or um, 600 after, years ago if you're listening in space. After we become wildly famous. <laughs> or yeah, um, what, probably 20 years ago if you're listening on Pluto. Because I think that's about how long it'll take the sound waves to get there. Hi Pluto. Uh, hi Pluto, we still love you. You're a planet, always um, in my heart. Uh, we did a, uh, well, we attempted to do a, uh, socially distanced quarantine cabaret. Our second one. Our second one. It's, it's part of a series of entertainment we're doing through 5050 Arts Production. But we got rained on. We got, we got monsooned on. We got rained on hard. Like, we were like 45 minutes in. We'd done our opening set and our first guest entertainer was up performing. And... We saw the clouds rolling in, and according to my radar, we were going. It was going to miss us. Like literally, part of the storm was going to go north, and part of the storm was going to go south. And then, right as it got above us, it conjoined. Is that even a freaking word? <laughs> like, well, it is a word. I don't know if, if it's, it's in the right, if I'm using it in the right context it, at all. It seems like the right word for what happened. It like morphed into this superstorm right above us, and every time, like, it started off raining really pretty lightly like it, and the sky looked brighter in the like where it was coming from so we're like and according to the radar it was going to pass in like 10 minutes and then right as it was about to pass it reformed over us and was like red and yellow on the radar which you know is not good and our guests were amazing because they first of all they were like yeah we'll, we'll hold out and people were still sitting under the trees and stuff while it was like sprinkling and then the freaking monsoon <laughs> came and we had tarped all the sound equipment and the piano and stuff. And when it, I mean, I haven't seen raindrops like that in a lot. <laughs> it, it came down hard. <laughs> it was so crazy. And our guests were amazing. Everyone helped us get the sound equipment in and dry everything out. The piano's okay. Um, and the sound equipment's fine. And Thank you to everyone that was there and helped. Yeah, and you guys are rock stars. Seriously, and we were raising money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS COVID nineteen Relief Fund, and we people, actually made almost two hundred dollars. A few, a few already. people donated, even though we only got like forty minutes into the show. So thank you to them. So thank too. you, and that is going to go to them. And also, um, we're doing it again 
tonight or tomorrow, Tuesday, the 28th. Tonight or yesterday or... or whenever you're listening to whenever this. Whenever you're so listening to this. We are going to do take two of the second one. So hopefully think dry thoughts and... Yeah. yeah. Wish us luck. Let us know how it goes if you're watching this, listening to this later. Yeah. Let us know what you thought. There's there's some great people. Uh, we got Jeff Mead, who's one of our patrons, yep. performing, and uh, and uh, we got Nathan Cooper, who designed our logo, performing, and then we this have is, this is a very this is a very in-house sort of cabaret. Yeah, happening. I'm loving like it. That. And then Patrick Delaney, uh, who's currently on furlough from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway, um, him and his husband Chris Okishi, who's an amazing uh, theatrical director and performer in the area. And uh, they're being accompanied by Jason Sifford, who we just met last night. Yeah. So tune in, enjoy, and uh, that's what's going on. I mean, you can become, you can give money if you want uh, for that charity. Yeah, when it time. starts when it starts playing, um, go ch- uh, check out uh, check it out on. I mean, if you um, go to fifty fifty artsproduction dot com, you'll be able to find a link or possibly a video, depending on where you go, to to see. The performance we're doing, and um, that you can donate to us or donate directly to Broadway Cares yeah. if if the the time for our fundraiser has yeah. passed. So uh, with that, so that's that. So what are we doing today? I think we should read a story. All right, let's read a book. I like it. All right, what so, are we reading? Um, I'm going to have you read. So this whole podcast is about re- trying to read the books on the bookshelves. You know, so I went down to my parents really pretty bookshelf that is all those like leather bound and old hard books. Um, and I saw this thing called Collected Ghost Stories by M.R. James. Okay. And it turns out he uh, is in the public domain because okay. uh, in 2006, all of the works that were published and or written during his lifetime went into the full public domain. And he is considered, I'm going to read this quote from the book because I love it. Uh Michael Sadler describes M.R. James as, quote, the best ghost story writer England has ever produced. Awesome. And so few does, would dispute it. So does the book squeak when you open it? Is it, it bound in leather made from human flesh? It actually squeaks. Like, listen, it's like a crackly oh. book. It's a real book, y'all. Like, it's a book. It smells It smells like a library book. No um, PDFs this time around. No We're going PDFs. old school. We're going old school. We're actually reading a book. All right. Uh, so, so what am I reading? Uh, just one sec. You're oh, going to read The Wailing Well. Okay. The Wailing Well. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was written in uh, 1927, published in 1928. Okay. And then this collection that we're reading from uh, was published in 1931. Great. And uh, Mr. Montague Rhodes James is his name. real name. Good <laughs> name. Amazing. Um, does not have a mustache. Are we allowed to read this book? I think I think so. And maybe just this picture, he doesn't have a mustache. Because, okay. like, we'll do some research. Um he... Hey, internet friends, <laughs> do some research and find us a picture of M.R. James with a mustache. Yes, please. Or we're going to like feel like we cheated you or something. Uh, he was a medievalist and scholar at uh, Eton College and Cambridge. So, But he's most known for his ghost stories, which he did later in life. So... Um, he was, he's British, and I think we should just, like, get to town and, and read this Wailing Wall, honestly. 
get to it. Get 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 down to the Whalen Let, Well. Let's let's kick the tires and light the fires. Yeah. Let's let's uh dive in. Light that fire, baby. Alright. So <clears throat> where is it? Here it I is. I marked it. I got it. It's got a it's got a like little like triangle like we used to do in books when you mark the dog eared the, the corner. Alright, I'm excited. I've never read any of this. Alright. The Wailing Well by M. R. James. Montague. In the year nineteen. In the year 19? Like That's way back. In the year 19, there were two... Ma- oh, I think it's 19 dash. So it's 19 something. Ah, so it's like... It's like, in the year 19... <laughs> <laughs> That's like, how old are you? Oh, I'm... Th- <laughs> uh, <coughs> yeah, I graduated from high school about <laughs> years ago. I had my 20... <laughs> so, in the year 19... <laughs> There were two members of the troop of scouts attached to a famous school named, respectively, Arthur Wilcox and Stanley Judkins. They were the same age, boarded in the same house, were in the same division, and naturally were members of the same patrol. So this is like Boy Scouts. boarding school kind of Boy Scouts? Yeah. They were so much alike in appearance as to cause anxiety and trouble and even irritation to the masters who came in contact with them. But oh, how different were they in their inward man or boy. Oh, man. So I always wanted to be a twin so I could mess with people. <laughs> like, I had these two, uh, Lauren and Lindsay Hacker were their names. I, I don't know. They just came to me. They were my friends when I was like... Uh, in third grade in Georgia. And I was so jealous because they were identical twins and they would mess get with, away with people stuff. all the time. And I was so jealous. So I'm excited to hear about these good boys. All right. So we've got two boys who look very similar, but apparently are quite different on the inside. It was to Arthur Wilcox that the headmaster said, looking up with a smile as the boy entered chambers, why, Wilcox, there will be a deficit in the prize fund if you stay here much longer. Here, take this handsomely bound copy of The Life and Works of Bishop Ken, and with it my hearty congratulations to yourself and your excellent parents. Are you a bishop? Yes. <laughs> it was Wilcox again whom the provost noticed as he passed through the playing fields and, pausing for a moment, observed to the vice provost, That lad has a remarkable brow. Yes, indeed, said the vice provost. It denotes either genius or water on the brain. Water on the brain? Uh, that's what he said. What is that? Is uh, that like he's a little touched? Like I, have, special? I have no idea. Or like brilliant? Um, I want to look it up. All right, look what it up. What does water on the brain mean? <laughs> oh, that's an actual, like, problem that's rare. It happens. Um, extra fluid puts pressure on the brain and can cause brain damage. <laughs> Rude. All right. All right, so he's either brilliant or brain damaged. All right, great. Based solely on his brow. Oh, I'm getting a very so clear picture of this boy. So they're doing, they're, they're, they study craniology or whatever that 
that science yeah. that pseudo science oh, with, the bumps, with is. the bumps when you like yeah. feel in the heads. Oh, they always have those at like garage sales. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, How does everyone have a copy of those um, posters, those the, crani- yeah. onomy, craniology, like, whatever does posters? Does anyone are... actually study that? Well, not anymore. It's been wildly debunked. <laughs> well, yes. But, like, why are they still everywhere? Like, I'm all about homeopathic remedies and, like, woo-woo. I love me some woo-woo medicine, but uh, that stuff's crazy and everybody has them. As a scout, Wilcox secured every badge and distinction for which he competed. The cookery badge, the map-making badge, the life-saving badge, the badge for picking up bits of newspaper, the badge for not slamming the door when leaving pupil room, and many others. Of the life-saving badge, I may have a word to say when we come to treat of Stanley Judkins. <laughs> You cannot be surprised to hear that Mr. Hope Jones added a special verse to each of his songs in commendation of Arthur Wilcox, or that the lower master burst into tears when handing him the Good Conduct Medal in its handsome claret-colored case. The medal, which had been unanimously voted to him by the whole of third form. Unanimously, did I say? I am wrong. There was one dissentient, Judkins, who said that he had excellent reasons for acting as he did. He shared, it seems, a room with his major. You cannot again wonder that after years, Arthur Wilcox was the first and so far only boy to become captain of both the school and of the Oppidans. Oppidans? Well, look up the word. OPP? OPP, baby, you know me. You down with OPP? Are you? O-P-P-I-D-A-N-S. You didn't answer my question. Are you down with OPP? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you down with OPP? Yeah, you know me. Come on. That's a deep cut throwback right there. <laughs> I know. It's great. Um, it is an inhabitant of a university town, but not member of the university or a university student living in the town rather than at the college. Three, it's a student at Eton College, which is where, where he went. He, uh, uh, was teaching the was teaching. Uh, Eaton College living in a residence owned by the school, but situated in the town outside the limits of the original foundation. Okay, great. great. So He's he was the first and by far only boy to become a captain uh, at both school and in the town. And the town. So he's like, he's like. So he's been recognized both on campus and off. Nice. So he's kicking butt. Uh, so backtracking, you cannot again wonder that in after ye- that in after years, Arthur Wilcox was the first and so far only boy to become captain of both the school and of the Oppidans, or that the strain of carrying out the duties of both positions, coupled with the ordinary work of school, was so severe that a complete rest for six months, followed by a voyage round the world, was pronounced an absolute necessity by the family doctor. Whoa. This kid's stressed. 
It would be a pleasant task to trace the steps by which he attained the giddy eminence he now occupies, but for the moment, enough of Arthur Wilcox. Time presses, and we must turn to a very different matter, the career of Stanley Judkins. Yeah, let's hear about this Judkins kid. Stanley Judkins, like Arthur Wilcox, attracted the attention of the authorities, but in quite another fashion. It was to him that the lower master said, with no cheerful smile, What, again, Judkins? A very little persistence in this course of conduct, my boy, and you will have cause to regret that you ever entered this academy. There, take that and that and think yourself very lucky that you don't get that and that. It was Judkins again, whom the provost had cause to notice as he passed through the playing fields. Wait, did he just get beat? I'm I'm gonna guess. Oh my god! It's 19... Oh my gosh, what'd he do? No wonder he doesn't like that other kid. That kid's like teacher's pet. He's getting (laughs) the shit beat out of him. (laughs) Uh... It was Judkins again, whom the provost had cause to notice as he passed through the playing fields, when a cricket ball struck him with considerable force on the ankle, and a voice from a short way off cried, Thank you, cut over! I think, said the provost, pausing for a moment to rub his ankle, that that boy had better fetch his cricket ball for himself. Indeed, yes, said the vice provost. And if he comes within reach, I'll do my best to fetch him something else. (laughs) As a scout, Stanley Judkins secured no badge save those which he was able to abstract from members of other patrols. In the cookery competition, he was detected trying to introduce squibs into the Dutch oven of the next door competitors. The Dutch oven? In the tailoring competition, he succeeded in sewing two boys together very firmly with disastrous effect when they tried to get up. Wait. That's taking the tying your shoelaces bit to like the new level. new level. He sewed two boys together. I'm assuming by the clothes and not like through the thigh. (laughs) I feel like they would have noticed that. I'm thinking they would have felt that. (laughs) My legs hurt. I have to stretch. Uh, For the tidiness badge, he was disqualified because in the midsummer school time, which chanced to be hot, he could not be dissuaded from sitting with his fingers in the ink, as he said, for coolness sake. For one piece of paper, which he picked up, he must have dropped at least six banana skins or orange peels. Aged women, seeing him approaching, would beg him with tears in their eyes not to carry their pails of water across the road. They knew too well what the result would inevitably be. Oh my god! But it was the life-saving competition that Stanley Judkins' conduct was most blamable and had the most far-reaching effects. The practice, as you know, was to throw a selected lower boy of suitable dimensions, fully dressed, with his hands and feet tied together, into the deepest part of Cuckoo Weir, and to time the scout whose turn it was to rescue him. 
on every occasion when he was entered for this competition, Stanley Judkins was seized at the critical moment with a severe fit of cramp, which caused him to roll on the ground and utter alarming cries. This naturally distracted the attention of those present from the boy in the water, and had it not been for the presence of Arthur Wilcox, the death roll would have been a heavy one. As it was, the lower master found it necessary to take a firm line and say that the competition must be discontinued. It was in vain that Mr. Beasley Robinson represented to him that in five competitions, only four lower boys had actually succumbed. Wait, four kids actually died during this? Yeah, I think that would be enough to say, nope, we're done. Um, I don't think that that's a great way to, like, why don't they just have someone pretend to be drowning? Like, yeah, you know, because, or- like, when I was a lifeguard, like, yeah, we kind of had to do that thing, but... They would, someone would flail, and, like, if you didn't get there or you didn't rescue them, yeah, then, you, uh, you know, they could save themselves. You didn't, like, zip tie their hands and feet and <laughs> chuck them into the river in cement boots. I like that they're, like, the Jesus. right dimensions. He said the child of the right dimensions. Good Lord. <laughs> so, I, if, 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 like, I was the right dimensions, I would get fat so fast. I'd be like, oh, no, that, that comp, the life-saving competition's coming up. I need to eat, like, 40 cakes today. Hell no. <laughs> oh, no. The lower master said that he would be the last to interfere in any way with the work of the scouts, but that three of these boys had been valued members of his choir, <laughs> and both he and Dr. Lay felt that the inconvenience caused by the losses outweighed <laughs> the advantages of the competitions. Do you think? Besides... The correspondence with the parents of these boys had become annoying and even distressing. They were no longer satisfied with the printed form, which he was in the habit of sending out. Okay. So they have this life-saving competition where they're actually killing some of their younger members... And it happens often enough that they have a form letter that they send to the parents. Jesus Christ, what kind of school is this? Yeah, I thought, like, just the corporal punishment was enough. I didn't know they were, like, murdering their students. Damn! This is like a military school where they're like, um, well... And more than one of them had out, this is at Eaton, and more than one of them had actually visited Eaton and taken up much of his valuable time with complaints. So, the life-saving competition is now a thing of the past. In short, Stanley Judkins was no credit to the scouts, and there was talk of more than one occasion, on more than one occasion, of informing him that his services were no longer required. This course was strongly advocated by Mr. Lambart, but in the end, milder counsels prevailed, and it was decided to give him another chance. (laughs) So it is that we find him at the beginning of the midsummer holidays of 19... (laughs) at the Scouts Camp in the beautiful district of W, or X... In the county of D or Y. Those are probably um, <laughs> things that mean something if in you know England. the geography of the area. 
but to me it just looks like an algebra problem and <laughs> yes. that's kind of confusing <laughs> so somewhere in some town that might be there there yeah uh yeah so the beautiful district of wherever in the county of Hoosets. now it sounds like a dr seuss novel <laughs> It was a lovely morning, and Stanley Judkins and one or two of his friends, for he still had friends, lay basking on the top of the down. Stanley was lying on his stomach with his chin propped in his hands, staring into the distance. I wonder what that place is, he said. Which place, said one of the others. That sort of clump in the middle of the field down there. Oh, ah, how should I know what it is? What do you want to know for, said another. I don't know. I like the look of it. What's it called? Nobody got a map, said Stanley. Call yourselves scouts? Here's here's a map, all right, said Wilfred Pipsqueak, ever resourceful. And there's a place marked on it. But it's beside a red ring. We can't go there. Who cares about a red ring, said Stanley. But it's got no name on your silly map. Well, you can ask this old chap what it's called if you're so keen to find out. This old chap was an old shepherd who had come up and was standing behind them. Ah! <laughs> what? Good morning, young gents, he said. You've got a fine day for your doings, ain't you? Uh, yes, thank you. Said Algernon de Montmorency. These kids' with, names are amazing. Well, it's rich people in England. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, the guy writing the book's first name is Montague. Yeah. So. Yes, thank you, said Algernon de Montmorency with native politeness. Can you tell us what that clump over there is called? And what's that thing inside it? Of course I can tell you, said the shepherd. That's wailing well, that is. But you ain't got no call to worry about it. Is it a well in there? said Algernon. Who uses it? The shepherd laughed. <laughs> oh, bless you, he said. There ain't from a man to a sheep in these parts uses wailing well, nor haven't done all the years I've lived here. He's becoming... I love that you're in, like... Like, somewhere in the West. Like, and yeah. we're definitely in England. We're definitely in but, England. Uh, well, you know, you know my, I, my accents do not accurately represent, um, do not accurately represent geography. This is an updated version. <laughs> and since we don't know what year it is, nor what town we're in, except that there's a college named Eaton, we get to decide, we get where, to decide. where it is. Besides, this is easier for me. Well, there'll be a record broken today then, said Stanley Judkins, because I shall go and get some water out of it for tea. Sakes alive, young gentleman, said the shepherd in a startled voice. Don't you get to talking that way. Why, ain't your masters give you notice not to go by there? They ought to have done. Yes, they have, said Wilfred Pipsqueak. (laughs) Shut up, you ass, said Stanley Judkins. What's the matter with it? Isn't the water good? Anyhow, if it's boiled, it'd be all right. I don't know as there's anything much wrong with the water, said the shepherd. All I know is, my old dog won't go through that field, let alone me or anyone else that's got a morsel of brains in their heads. 
More fool them, said Stanley Judkins, at once rudely and ungrammatically. <laughs> Wait, you're going to comment on his grammar, but not this shepherd not who this hasn't been... Well, whatever. I guess because the shepherd's not had any good schooling. He's not, he's not an Eaton student. <laughs> he's not an Eaton. <laughs> Whoever took any harm going there, he added. Three women and a man, said the shepherd gravely. Now, just you listen to me. I know these ear parts, and you don't. I can tell you this much. For these ten years last past, there ain't been a sheep fed in that field, nor a crop raised off it. And it's good land, too. You can pretty well see from here what state it's got into with brambles and suckers and trash of all kind. You've got a glass, young gentleman, he said to Wilfred Pipsqueak. You can tell with that, anyway. Yes, said Wilfred, but I see there's tracks in it. Someone must go through it sometimes. <laughs> tracks, said the shepherd. I believe you. Four tracks. Three women... And a man. Uh, what do you mean, three women and a man, said Stanley, turning over coven. for the first time and looking at the shepherd. He had been talking with his back to him <laughs> till this moment. He was an ill-mannered boy. Yeah. Mean? Why, what I says, three women and a man. Who are they, asked Algernon. Why do they go there? There's some perhaps could tell you who they was, said the shepherd. But it was for my time they come by their end, and why they goes there still is more than the children of men can tell, except I've heard they was all badins when they was alive. By George, what a rum thing, Algernon and Wilfred <laughs> muttered. But Stanley was scornful and bitter. Why... You don't mean they're debtors. What rot! You must be a lot of fools to believe that. Who's ever seen them, I'd like to know. I've seen them, young gentleman, said the shepherd. I've uh, seen them from nearby on that bit of down. And my old dog, if he could speak, he'd tell you he's seen them same time. About four o'clock of the day it was, much such a day as this... I see them, each one of them, come peering out of the bushes and stand up and work their way slow by them tracks toward the trees in the middle where the well is. And what were they like? Do tell us, said Algernon and Wilfred eagerly. Rags and bones, young gentlemen. All four of them fluttering rags and whitey bones. <laughs> it seemed to me as if I could hear them clacking. As they got along, very slow they went, and looking from side to side. What were their faces like? Could you see? They hadn't much to call faces, said the shepherd. But I could seem to see as they had teeth. <laughs> Lord, Ew, said Wilfred. Gross. <laughs> and what did they do when they got to the trees? I can't tell you that, sir, said the shepherd. I wasn't for staying in that place, and if I had been, I was bound to look to my old dog. He'd gone. Such a thing he'd never done before as leave me, but gone he had. Yeah, that dog's like, uh, I'm the I'm out. fuck out of here. I am gone. Those are not the kind of bones I like. <laughs> <laughs> 
And when I come up with him in the end, he was in a state he didn't know me and was fit to fly at my throat. But I kept talking to him, and after a bit he remembered my voice and came creeping up like a child asking pardon. I never want to see him like that again, nor yet no other dog. The dog, who had come up and was making friends all around, looked up at his master and expressed agreement with what he was saying very fully. <laughs> that means he gave him kisses. I love puppies. <laughs> the boys pondered for some moments on what they had heard, after which Wilfred said, And why is it called Wailing Well? If you was around here at dusk of a winter's evening, you wouldn't want to ask why, was all the shepherd said. Well, I don't believe a word of it, said Stanley Judkins, and I'll go there next chance I get. Shocking. Blowed if I don't. Of course, I'm totally that kid too. <laughs> um, I, like, on my Facebook memories today, I went and stayed in Eureka Springs at the Crescent Hotel by myself, and like... Went a ghost hunting. Yeah. So let's be real. I would be that kid. He's, and he's always getting in trouble at school. That's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm Judkins. Some people just want to poke the bear. That's all. I like poking bears. <laughs> then you won't be ruled by me, said the shepherd. Nor yet by your masters has warned you off. Come now, young gentleman. You don't want for sense, I should say. What should I want telling you a pack of lies? It ain't sixpence to me, anyone going in that field. But I wouldn't like to see a young chap snuffed out like in his prime. Ooh, damn. I expect it's a lot more than sixpence to you, said Stanley. I expect you've got a whiskey still or something in there and want to keep other people away. Rot, I call it. Come on back, you boys. He's like, the so they... shepherd's making whiskey in there. I'm on go <laughs> and get I it. I want some. Mm, whiskey, I'll see you later. <laughs> so they turned away. The two others said, good evening and thank you to the shepherd. But Stanley said nothing. The shepherd shrugged his shoulders and stood where he was, looking after them rather sadly. On the way back to the camp, there was a great argument about it all. And Stanley was told as plainly as he could be told, all sorts of fools he would be if he went to the whaling well. That evening, among other notices, Mr. Beasley Robinson asked if all maps had got the red ring marked on them. Be particular, he said, not to trespass inside it. <laughs> Several. Snape? I feel, I feel sure, like that that's was, Snape. I think that uh, teacher is Alan Beasley, Rickman. Beasley Robinson. Yeah. Be particular not to trespass inside it. <laughs> Several voices, among them a sulky one of Stanley Judkins, said, Why not, sir? Because not, said Mr. Beasley Robinson. And if that isn't enough for you, I can't help it. He is very Snape. He very turned Snape and spoke to Mr. Lambart in a low voice and then said, I'll tell you this much. We've been asked to warn scouts off that field. It's very good of the people to let us camp here at all, and the least we can do is to oblige them. I'm sure you will agree with that. No, I'm Harry Potter, and I do what I want. 
Everybody said yes, sir, except Stanley Judkins, who was heard to mutter, Oblige them, be blowed. (laughs) (laughs) Oblige them, be blowed. What a dick. Is that just like, blow me? (laughs) Yeah. That's that's suck my dick in Eaton terms. That's Edwardian Eaton for (laughs) blow me. Early in the afternoon of the next day, the following dialogue was heard. Wilcox, is all your tent there? No, sir. Judkins isn't. That boy is the most infernal nuisance ever invented. Where do you suppose he is? I haven't an idea, sir. Does anybody else know? I do. I do. I know where he went. Sir? I shouldn't wonder if he'd gone to the whaling well. Who's that? Pip Squeak. <laughs> What's the whaling well? Sir, it's that place in the field by... Well, sir, it's in a clump of trees in a rough field. Do you mean inside the red Ring, good heavens, what makes you think he's gone there? Why, he's been terribly keen to know about it since yesterday, and we were talking to a shepherd man, and he told us a lot about it and advised us not to go there, but Judkins didn't believe him and said he meant to go. Young ass, said Mr. Hope Jones. (laughs) Did he take anyone with him? Yes, I think he... Took, uh, did, did he take anything with him? <laughs> yes, I think he took some rope and a can. Because he wants that whiskey. We did tell him he'd be a fool to go. Little brute. What the deuce does he mean by pinching stores like that? Well, come along, you three. We must see after him. What the deuce? Uh, why can't people keep the simplest orders? What was the... What was it the man told you? No, don't wait. Let's have it as we go. And off they started. Elgernon and Wilfred talking rapidly, and the other two listening with growing concern. At last, they reached that spur of down overlooking the field of which the shepherd had spoken the day before. It commanded the place completely. The well inside the clump of bent, gnarled scotch firs was plainly visible, and so were the four tracks winding about among the thorns and rough growth. It was a wonderful day of shimmering heat. The sea looked like like a... (laughs) Kind of like yesterday. I'll melt with you. Before it started raining. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. (laughs) It was a wonderful day of shimmering heat. The sea looked like a floor of metal. There was no breath of wind. They were all exhausted when they got to the top and flung themselves down on the hot grass. Nothing to be seen of him yet, said Mr. Hope Jones, but we must stop here a bit. You're done up, not to speak of me. Keep a sharp lookout. He went on after a moment. I thought I saw the bushes stir. Yes, said Wilcox. So did I. Look. No, that can't be him. It's somebody, though, putting their head up, isn't it? I thought it was, but I'm not sure. Silence for a moment. Then, well, that's him, sure enough, said Wilcox. Getting over the hedge on the far side, don't you see? With a shiny thing. That's the can you said he had with him. 
Yes, that's that's him, and he's making straight for the trees, said Wilfred. At this moment, Elgernon, who had been staring with all his nut might, broke into a scream. What? What's on the track? On all fours? Oh, it's a woman. Oh, I don't let Oh, don't let me look at her. Don't let it happen. And he rolled over, clutching at the grass and trying to bury his head in it. Stop that, said Mr. Hope Jones loudly, but it was no use. Look here, he said. I must go down there. You stop here, Wilfred, and look after that boy. Wilcox, you run as hard as you can to the camp and get some help. I'm freaking out. This is good. I'm like, ah! They ran off, both of them. Wilfred was left alone with Algernon and did his best to calm him, but indeed he was not much happier himself. From time to time he glanced down the hill and into the field. He saw Mr. Hope Jones drawing nearer to us at a swift pace, and then, to his great surprise, he saw him stop, look up and round about him, and turn quickly off at an angle. What could be the reason? He looked at the field, and there he saw a terrible figure, something in ragged black with whitish patches breaking out of it. The head, perched on a long, thin neck, half hidden by a shapeless sort of blackened sunbonnet. The creature was waving thin arms in the direction of the rescuer who was approaching as if to ward him off. And between the two figures, the air seemed to shake and shimmer as he had never seen it. And as he looked, he began himself to feel something of a waviness and confusion in his brain, which made him guess what might be the effect on someone within closer range of the influence. He looked away hastily to see Stanley Judkins making his way pretty quickly toward the clump, and in proper scout fashion, evidently picking his steps with care to avoid treading on snapping sticks or being caught by the arms of brambles. Evidently, though, he saw nothing. He suspected some sort of ambush, and he was trying to go noiselessly. Wilfred saw all that. He saw more, too. With a sudden and dreadful sinking at the heart, he caught sight of someone among the trees, waiting, and again of someone, another of the hideous black figures, working slowly along the track from another side of the field, looking from side to side, as the shepherd had described it. Worst of all, he saw a fourth, unmistakably a man this time, rising out of the bushes a few yards behind the wretched Stanley and painfully, as it seemed, crawling into the track. Ew. On all sides, the miserable victim was cut off. Oh my god, they're going to eat a soul! <laughs> Wilfred was at his wit's end. He rushed at Elgernon and shook him. Get up, he said. Yell, yell as loud as you can. Oh, if we'd got a whistle. Elgernon pulled himself together. There's one, he said. Wilcox's, he must have dropped it. So they whistled. The other screamed. In the still air, the sound carried. Stanley heard. He stopped. He turned round. And then, indeed, a cry was heard more piercing and dreadful than any that the boys on the hill could raise. It was too late. The crouched figure behind Stanley sprang at him and caught him above the waist. 
the dreadful one that was standing, waving her arms, waved them again, but in exultation. The one that was lurking among the trees shuffled forward, and she too stretched out her arms as if to clutch at something coming her way, and the other, farthest off, quickened her pace and came on, nodding gleefully. The boys took it all in in an instant of terrible silence, and hardly could they breathe as they watched the horrid struggle between the man and his victim. Stanley struck with his can, the only weapon he had. The rim of a broken black hat fell off the creature's head and showed a white skull with stains of what might be wisps of hair. By this time, one of the women had reached the pair and was pulling at the rope that was coiled about Stanley's neck. Between them, they overpowered him in a moment, and the awful screaming ceased. Then the three passed within the circle of the clump of firs. Yet for a moment, it seemed as if rescue might come. Mr. Hope Jones, striding quickly along, suddenly stopped, turned, seemed to rub his eyes, and then started running towards the field. More, the boys glanced behind them and saw not only a troop of figures from the camp coming over the top of the next hill, but the shepherd running up the slope of their own hill. They beckoned, they shouted, they ran a few yards towards him, then back again. He mended his pace. Once more, the boys looked toward the field. There was nothing, or... Was there something among the trees? Why was there a mist about the trees? Mr. Hope Jones had scrambled over the hedge and was plunging through the bushes. The shepherd stood beside them, panting. They ran to him and clung to his arms. They've got him in the trees, was as much as they could say over and over again. What? Do you tell me he've gone in there after all I said to him yesterday? Poor young thing. Poor young thing. He would have said more, but other voices broke in. The rescuers from the camp had arrived. A few hasty words and all were dashing down the hill. They had just entered the field when they met Mr. Hope Jones. Over his shoulder hung the corpse of Stanley Judkins. He had cut it from a branch to which he had found it hanging, waving to and fro. There was not a drop of blood in the body. Oh my God, ew! On the following day, Mr. Hope Jones sallied forth with an axe and with the express intention of cutting down every tree in the clump and of burning every bush in the field. He returned with a nasty cut on his leg and a broken axe handle. Oh my God! Not a spark of fire could he light, and not a single tree could he make the least impression. I have heard that the present population of the Wailing Well field consists of three women, a man, and a boy. The shock experienced by Algernon de Montmorency and Wilfred Pipsqueak was severe. Both of them left the camp at once, and the occurrence undoubtedly cast a gloom, if but a passing one, on those who remained. One of the first to recover his spirits was Judkins. Such gentlemen 
is the story of the career of Stanley Judkins and of a portion of the career of Arthur Wilcox. It has, I believe, never been told before. If it has a moral, that moral is, I trust, obvious. If it has none, I do not well know how to help it. What? Wait, did he die? I'm not entirely sure. Wait, was it the other kid? Because they looked alike, right? Maybe? My first recovery experience was Judkins. Who did he carry over his shoulder when he came out of the thing? The corpse of Stanley Judkins. Well, I'm confused. I'm confused and freaked out. That was gross. Ew. Like, <laughs> my God. Like, what? What? Oh. Ooh, ghost story. I was convinced that Shepard and his dog were dead, too. Oh. And they were, like, trying to, like, keep people out of there because that's how they died. And it was like, don't oh, go don't in, go in there. there. Don't go in there. That's bad news. And that's why his dog didn't recognize him when he came home because he had, Because like, he was dead. Experienced a, yeah, he died. Oh. Yeah. No, that was that was uh that was spooky. That, that was, was cool. That was very spooky and I'm like, "Wait, what happened? What happened to the kid that was like the best kid ever?" What was his name again? That was Wilcox. And Wilcox carried him out? Oh. No. Who carried him out of the forest? Hang on. Because maybe Judkins killed Wilcox and then like assumed his identity. Ba -ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba. No, so uh, Mr. Hope Jones. He carried him out. Was one of the like troop leaders yeah. who carried him out. And where was Goody Two Shoes the whole time? He was the one who ran back to the camp to try to get help. Okay, I'm intrigued. I want to like read like ooh, like reception on this. Yeah, I'm super confused. Like, I don't know what happened. I know. I'm like, so, there was a switcheroo or something, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I, somehow I think. Well. So I'm wondering if if um, the one of the soonest to recover his spirits was Judkins is a pun on and now he's a spirit. Oh. Oh. It's a joke. It's a joke. He ends with a pun. Uh, I'm all about that. <laughs> I love ending on a pun. <laughs> Recover his spirits. <laughs> because right, he wouldn't yep. have he wouldn't have cared anyway. Even if he hadn't died and it happened to somebody else, he'd have been like, stupid Whatever. kid. <laughs> He's also probably the kind of person who'd like he gets murdered by ghosts and he wakes up as a ghost and he's like <laughs> Cool. cool. You know he's, like, ready for someone to come into that, like, bramble. He's like, I'm gonna fuck someone up today. He's chilling right on the perimeter, like, right on the edge of where they're allowed to, their their spirits can go. He's hanging out right on the edge and waiting for someone to, like, walk past so he can snag their coat yeah. sleeve or something. So he can, like, wait. He's not even gonna wait for them to trespass. No, he's gonna, like, lure them over there. Like, at least the other ones wait till you go in there. Well, I wonder if they still have a voice. Could he be, like, he could be, he could pretend to be little Timmy down the well. <laughs> Timmy down the well! <laughs> 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 well, well. <laughs> 
Oh, that was the throwback, dude. So that was the story of The Wailing Well by M.R. James. One of uh, England's most prolific ghost story writers. If, uh, if you enjoyed that one and want to hear more sort of spooky ghost stories, let us know. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can go to the website, 5050artsproduction.com. If you really liked it, become one of our patrons and you can find out about that at the website. Um, or you can go to patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction. And for as little as $2 a month, you can like be our support system and help us create more work like this and the quarantine cabarets and uh, all the other things we're doing. Um, but yeah, and we got magnets today. So now we yeah, have postcards, we've got, stickers. We've got and extra swag. Extra swag. Lots of stuff. Uh, we're also uh, always looking for ideas for the next stories that we should read. Uh, we've collected a few suggestions already, mm-hmm. so be listening for some of those. If you've already suggested one, you might have a story coming out soon that's going to be dedicated to you. Oh. Uh, if you would like to recommend a story, uh, please email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or again, send us a message through Facebook or Instagram or the website or wherever else you can find us. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned uh, for the next story. And thanks for listening. And tell your friends and share. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. We did it. And it was actually a book on our shelf. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time.